0: It's the subject of dozens of TV crime shows and has captured the imagination of the public throughout the centuries. Forensic medicine is medicine used in the service of the law. I'm Liz Pearson and in this week's Moments in Medicine I'll be talking to Dr Cassie Watson from Oxford Brookes University and to Dr Ian Burney from Manchester University about the development of modern forensics. We'll hear how some of the historic problems surrounding its practice remain unsolved to this day.
1: One of the major questions today is who gets to accredit a particular expert as an expert and then that becomes a philosophical question about how do you recognise when a science is a science and that is considered to be an issue, a problem back in the early 19th century and still today.
0: Dr Ian Burney specialises in medical legal history and the roots of the conundrum he describes go back to the earliest beginnings of forensics. Dr. Cassie Watson is a historian of medicine, and she explains just how far back that is. We can actually see
2: an understanding of what we would term forensics, but which they didn't, in Roman Egypt, which is just after the birth of Christ. They did actually have formal forensic functioning physicians, people who were mandated by magistrates to go out and make medical examinations of people who'd
0: been killed or wounded. But when do we actually see a recognition of this idea that there is a type of medicine that relates to the law? probably to the 12th and 13th centuries,
2: mainly in Italy, but generally in Western Europe. In the 13th century, forensic medicine basically meant inspecting bodies.
0: This would remain the case for several hundred years. But forensic medicine still evolved, driven by the needs of the law and by changing social attitudes. Up until the 18th century, for example, it wasn't uncommon for a woman whose child had died to be hanged for infanticide. As juries recoiled from this, forensic medicine was used to save women's lives. Dr Cassie Watson has evidence from a case in Paris in 1707. A surgeon called Anthony Aubert is asked to certify
2: by the state attorney the case of the daughter of a man called Paul Charpentier, uh, where a dead infant was found, and he says... Having seen and examined the cadaver of the newborn, delivered by Elizabeth Charpentier, daughter of the above-mentioned Paul, I have found the head of the cadaver fractured and livid, which in my mind has occurred during delivery, be it that he was too long in the passages or that he was delivered too brutally, as there was nobody knowing the operation. I herewith certify that what I have said above is truly given this day and year, and he signs his report. This is quite distinctive of continental practice at this time. A physician and or a surgeon will write a report and sign it.
0: Even by the 19th century, the hallmarks of this case, a doctor employed by the state giving a written report, were completely absent from English law. By then, the English court system resembled the one we know today, with witnesses called by both prosecution and defence. And this caused a basic problem, as Dr Ian Burney explains.
1: There are no officially constituted witnesses. Basically, you have a marketplace of witnesses who offer their services to either the defence or the prosecution. And that leads to charges, at least, that there are pseudoscientists, scientists who hire themselves out.
0: By the middle of the 19th century, a new crime wave was to capture the British public's imagination. And it would test the basis of forensics and just whose testimony should be heard.
1: There is a degree of mysterious horror attached to the use of poison which seems to attract and fascinate a certain class of minds. Arsenic, from the comparative absence of taste and colour, affords great facilities for the commission of the crime of poisoning and I have been told that among these classes where the crime is rife, arsenic and poison are looked on as synonymous. The most common poison in the 19th century is arsenic, and that's because it's incredibly cheap. It has a multitude of different uses, dyeing, colouring. So arsenic is part of the materiality of Victorian
0: life. In the 1840s, the press reported more and more cases of poisoning by arsenic. In 1851, Parliament passed the Arsenic Act to try to curb the problem. But still, it went on. This was a sophisticated murder, requiring the new science of toxicology to make sense of it. Dr Ian Burney.
1: It's putting a lot of pressure on forensics to deliver the goods. Poison works secretly, invisibly, cowardly. So one of the things that the public is looking to the toxicologist for is to make the invisible visible. The toxicologist is in the role of a certain kind of a a magician.
0: And you see something quite primitive in that
1: well, I mean, in, in the sense that there's a primitive urge involved, so one of the classic sort of medieval beliefs is that if the murderer is brought to the body and the body bleeds, then that's an indication that the person that caused the bleeding actually caused the death. And in that sense, what it is that toxicology was claiming to be able to do was to make science, rather than superstition, be the driving force for making the body speak, and that Interestingly enough, I think is one of the reasons why, when toxicologists fail, they are so publicly lambasted.
0: Nowhere was the role of the toxicologist more agonised over than in the controversial case in 1856 of Dr William Palmer, a Staffordshire GP. He had gambling problems, debts and easy access to poison. In 1848, his wife died and he gained on her life insurance. Then his brother succumbed. When his business partner, Cook, swiftly followed, Palmer was arrested and charged. Poison was suspected, but it was crucial to identify which one. Celebrated toxicologist of his day, Alfred Swain Taylor, was brought in.
1: Taylor comes to the inquest having identified only a small portion of antimony, which is a commonly prescribed medication. He heard testimony of the nurse of Cook... And from her descriptions of the symptoms, he decided Cook had died of strychnine poisoning. Now, the problem that he had was that he hadn't found any strychnine in the body. So the trial ends. Palmer is convicted. He goes to the scaffold denying it. The final thing that he says on the scaffold is, I did not poison Cook with strychnine. He put this riddle, you might have got me, but you didn't get me the right way, that that causes a huge amount of consternation and direct criticism of the kind of science and and the position of the expert that Taylor embodies.
0: There was much hand-wringing, with talk of adopting the continental method of accredited experts and written statements. But in the end, the English legal practice didn't change. There was, however, beginning to be an important shift in forensics, away from the historic emphasis on the body, towards the new idea of a crime scene and a recognition of the importance of the mind. Dr Cassie Watson told me about one important precedent. In
2: 1843, a man called Daniel McNaughton was tried for murder, and his defence was that he was not guilty because he was insane at the time of the crime. Nowadays we might think of it as a personality disorder, and the precedent was that MacNaughton was found not to know that what he was doing was wrong and that instituted what became known as the right-wrong test. And that test had a really strong role to play in Anglo-American law, and it still forms the basis of the insanity defence in almost half of US
0: states. For Dr. Ian Burney, the importance of this shift of emphasis away from the body is the subsequent change in the way that evidence could be attacked.
1: Over the course of the 20th century, with the development of different kinds of analytical techniques, fiber analysis, hair analysis, and to some extent because DNA typing is seen now to be so robust, you don't attack the science, you attack the approach to the science. Whether what the science actually got is pristine, is pure, is, is non-contaminated.
0: When we think of forensics, it's the lab, the crime scene, not the pathology of the post-mortem that probably come to mind. Dr. Cassie Watson explains that, in forensics history, this distinction is a very modern one.
2: There's a complete and utter distinction between forensic science, which is what we see when we watch programmes like CSI, and forensic medicine, cutting up the body. Science, in the way that we think of it now, was really just beginning to emerge around about 1900. But you could see it was there, and you could see it was going to go places.
0: And it has. DNA techniques, hair analysis, psychological profiling, all belong to the modern age of forensics, and their methods we now accept as reliable. But, while the science may be ever-changing, in English law at least, the problem of whose evidence to listen to and which scientists to trust remains as active today as it was 200 years ago.